Welcome to Account Trends, everybody. I'm Jason Stein with Intuit Accountants. My co-host, David Bergstein, and I are excited to be with you every couple of weeks to share the latest news, interesting perspectives, and hottest trends in the tax and accounting world. We'll have special guests on the show to help break these trends down and give you food for thought as you find new ways to deliver for your clients. But most importantly, we plan on having some fun while doing it. Welcome. All right, welcome back to Account Trends, another awesome episode. Uh, here as your host, as always, Jason Stein, and with me, David Bergstein. How are you today? I'm doing great today. I hope you're doing well. I did my pickleball this morning. Have you tried pickleball yet? I have yet to try it. I'm going to have to. And didn't you tell me I needed to learn on, on another sport that's growing in popularity? Cornhole? Yeah, yeah forget, you know, cornhole or axe throwing or something's up your rally at this point. That's right. I haven't done any research on it. I know that my wife has taken the kids to do axe throwing, but I haven't done it myself. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've watched people play cornhole. I always just, I never thought of it as like a sport. I just thought of it as like some backyard you know, game that you play when you're having a few beers and grilling out. Is there something more formalized being created around it? Well, they've created some leagues. It's now on TV. There's a channel dedicated to cornhole. And, you know, something you like, drinking beer and doing cornhole. <laughs> That's right. You know me well. <laughs> you know, so, well and, you know, and you know that I'm a visionary when it comes to talking about things before they happen. You know, the cannabis way back when. Um, the virtual office. And today, I think we have a visionary with us, do we? Yes. Great lead in. We have uh, with us today, Mr. Bob Lewis from the Visionary Group. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. And I, uh, I love the banter about cornholes and uh, pickleball because it, it shows how old we're all getting. Uh, it's easier. Although I have played pickleball, it's not that easy of a sport. It can move very oh, really? quickly. Um, in a cornhole, I need a lot more beer than because the officer drowned it in the misery, missing the middle of that hole in the board. Um, <laughs> so same. Well, thanks for having me, guys. What would you like to know today? What would you like to? Yes. Well, so Bob, you have. Um, so for, let's start with just grounding our audience on who are you, in case they haven't already heard of you, because we know you're uh, you're on the top 100 most influential people list with Accounting Today, um, and have done a lot of work with. Um, you know, consulting and, and that that sort of thing. Tell us about your background in the industry and your road to creating the Visionary Group. Making this pretty short, I've been doing, um, I've been only working with accounting firms for 27 years now. That was a two and a seven, I can blur it together for a long time. Uh, we help these firms with a lot of merger and acquisition work. We either seek out firms for them to acquire or merge in, identify the candidates, for some of our clients, we have to find them a home to go into, but it could be a merger or it could be an upward sale. A lot of succession assessments these days because that's also fueling, fueling a lot of the M&A. We've got, no surprise, massive staffing shortage. Capacity problems are huge. I got an aging baby boomer population. Uh, basic economics of supply and demand kick in here. We don't have enough people. We've got too much work. We help firms figure out how to offshore. You know, There's so many firms that don't know how to do it or have tried it and failed. And we're really helping figure out how to open up their advisory arms because the way to grow your capacity is to not be as dependent on CPAs to make that happen. In the middle of all this, we got chaos. We've got outside investors kicking in. Uh, we've got people trying to figure out how to get out. We've got other industries being acquired by CPA firms. There's a lot going on. Prior to this, before I ever did all this crazy stuff, I used to work as an accountant. So um, showing my age a little bit, Remember green ledger sheets? I, I learned on those. Uh, I, was, I was around in a couple of high-tech companies that were doing a lot of the software development, which are now, of course, gone uh, as time has evolved. But it was pretty deep in the technology side in these kind of accounting departments in these firms, too. So it's interesting to see how all this has changed. It, it's actually quite fascinating to sit back and go. Never would have seen this coming. Um, but we're here today. Good news is, Jason, accountants are making a lot of money. Yes, they are. So does that mean people should go into accounting? Because I know we have a pipeline shortage. I keep telling people to go into accounting because it's not about accounting. It's about the advisory service. What do you tell them? I, I think this is, okay, the ACPA is not endorsing this statement for me by any shape or form. I see the numbers that come across of what partners make. I'm going to tell you, if if I was doing this all over again, I would 
would have stayed in accounting. I would have stayed in my own firm. I don't run it. And I'd be controlling it to this day. There's a lot of capacity issues, a lot of problems. You can see all the pipeline issues. But the opportunity for income in this profession is massive. It's more my, it's more than more than the medical field pays. It's more than, you know, more than some of these professions where you have to spend so much time in. And it's not easy to become a CPA. But the regulatory issues inside a lot of these are just astronomical. And um, opportunity here in the CPA profession, to me, is... It's right there. I just don't think a lot of the younger people see that. They, they aren't getting exposure to it. Yeah, hit the nail on the head, Bob. And we talked about that with, with others as well. And I know a lot of the state societies and AICPA and plenty of other organizations are, are trying to figure out how do we get upstream and demonstrate what this industry really, and, and it's not even what it really is, because we're still struggling with a lot of the things that you talked about, um, like all of the things you talked about. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> The, the, I think the bigger thing is like this, and I've heard somebody else say it before, the squandered opportunity that, that we have in our profession. It, it is one amazing profession that we get to work in. And it's unfortunate that we have a brand with our younger generation and, and those outside of our profession that it's really just a bunch of, you know, guys with green visors sitting behind a calculator, you know, just doing crunching numbers all day long. Cause that is just not what it is. My concern in this industry is, you know, first of all, I think there's going to be just massive transformation. You're going to see a lot of niche specialists emerge more. You're going to see firms get more and more selective of who they take as a client. And there's going to be a very large bottom of the pyramid of businesses out there that can't find an accountant, just can't find it. Now, some of that's going to be offset by offshoring, but the larger firms are going to have almost all review people in place. They're not going to have prep people anymore. That's just not going to be there. Technology is going to kick in deeper and deeper. And do a lot of the manual calculations and, and prep that, you know, some scanning alone will just put items into the document. The documents will start to auto-calculate themselves, and then they'll have a person in there to do review work. But what I see happening is that bottom base of the pyramid, those smaller, smaller businesses out there that can't find anybody, automation will cover a lot of it. But I think there's just going to be businesses popping up that specifically just address them, and they're going to do everything for them. They're in all their insurance. Now, we're not talking about malpractice. We're talking about all their, all their insurance they need for the business, all their benefits, all their technology, everything legal, all in one shop, one fee. I come in. I make my cupcakes because I've got like a cupcake store. I got one place to go for everything. All integrated. I pay a pretty large fee for that. But, you know, one center is going to be there. In that center will also probably be my wealth management arm, too. And everything right. will be set up for them. I just don't know how businesses can survive anymore when they've got so many pieces they have to juggle. And it's always been a problem. But now with this opportunity, I think with CPA firms skinnying out their client base, I think it's going to force a whole new industry. Um, if I was a few years younger, to be honest with you, I'd be probably trying to open one of those centers up because I think it's going to be huge. Yeah. Do you, do you think that these centers are going to be what we're seeing here with accounting firms splitting up between consulting and auditing, the professional service side of the firm, doing everything uh, and selling them every service? Yeah, but I think you're going to see tiers, Dave. So I think what will happen is the way they're splitting up right now or adding and consolidating, they're going to go after that middle market on a client. And the middle market's a pretty wide number. Where do you define middle market? Is it a $10, $20 million company? Is it a $5 million? It depends on your definition of it. But I think they're going to focus up there. And, and you're going to see a whole other grouping of companies that are going to do the smaller client because there'll be different sets of needs, different level of cost. Um, that's just, I mean, I'm out there thinking this stuff through because I sit back and I'm like, what are all these people going to do? It's even look at like the cost of technology now. And, and Dave, a lot of the larger firms out there have uh, they've made significant investments for decades now in tech. Not that they weren't doing it before, but firms are grouping together. We've got a couple of clients that are in groups of firms where they've co-invested into a technology or acquisition of a client or, you know, like a, a company. And they share it between the group. And that's how they cut their cost structure down. That's how they get their development done. Because on their own, even though these are all good-sized firms, it's still too much money to invest individually. I think we're going to see more and more of that collaboration. The end of the day is, you know, we've got a one core problem in this industry that I don't know how we're going to fix it. I don't, I don't know how they're going to fix this. This is, this is getting back to work-life balance and culture and all this stuff. And, Look, we got a lot of regulatory issues that require three, three, you know, three fifteen deadlines, four fifteen deadlines. You know, 
And, and unfortunately, a lot of that work needs to be done at that compression period, as we like to call it. There's no way to spread it. I can't have a 40-hour work week if I have if I have 70% of my work being done in a certain period of time. I, it's just impossible to do it and, and maintain a comp where you need a comp it. So that's the problem I do see with this industry that's going to be the, the hardest workaround is the regulatory deadlines because no matter what, work needs to hit those deadlines. And even if I do an extension, you know, I'm, I'm not an accountant anymore, so I'm a little bit loose on my numbers here, but even if I do an extension on my 315 filing or my 415 filing, I still have to come back with a basic understanding of where I'm at. They file that extension without getting hit with a ton of penalties. Right. So a lot of the work still needs to get done, even though I'm looking like I'm pushing it. A lot of the work still needs to be done. And, and clients aren't exactly the most cooperative. Mm-hmm. As being a client for an accounting firm, someone has had to get trained over the years by their accountant to not wait you know, too long to get information in. Um, that would be someone else on this call besides me, I'm sure. But um, Oh, I'm right there with you. I, yeah. no, knowing, knowing this industry as well as I do and haven't been in it for 25 years myself, and I'm, I'm still like last minute. Yeah, and I, I've, I've gotten much better about that. Um, I've actually solved my problem. I, I went to uh, counseling to get that thing solved, but I've, I've solved that problem finally. But, um, you know, most most smaller businesses don't, and even some of the large ones, that creates even more problems and compression inside that forced timeline. And yeah, make the problem worse, you know, every firm has A, B, and C kind of employees. I don't mean I don't call anybody out for any specific reason. You got those employees that if you ask them to continue to run into a wall, they would run into the wall because they got to figure out how to way to figure to get through the wall. Then you've got other employees who are like, well, you know, not my problem. I'm going to go home. Um, and uh, <laughs> and those A employees, uh, they're often the ones that will do anything for you or the ones that are given the hardest tasks or pushed the hardest. And they have a tendency to resist the burnout. But at some point, they're they're probably more likely to explode. And in this marketplace, we got to be careful with that because it's not, I'm not talking about like a violence factor. I'm just talking about the fact that they'll get fed up and leave and then right. we lose a really key person. But um, options can be somewhat limited in this market. So you want to get back to your core, your theme of like M&A. That's, now you're kind of hitting it. You're hitting a lot of hitting a lot of points here before you even get to that. Right. Well, but they're all, they're all relevant to that, right? Because that that environment is creating this, this opportunity for M&A and private equity to come in and really, really shift the direction of our profession. So perfect transition, Bob, please unpack that. If we had no restrictions on people, like we had unlimited supply of people, we wouldn't be talking about 90% of what we talk about in this industry because nothing would have changed. And yeah. we'd be making money, we'd be hiring more people, or we'd be, you know, we'd, nothing would change. Technology get a little better, like it always says, but we wouldn't be dealing with any of these issues. So we're forced to address a problem on capacity. And I, I don't want to, I want to make light of the fact that we want to make sure people are, are taken care of and respect for the work week and, and, you know, try and get that work-life balance. But the reality is everyone's chasing the same limited number of people and the pool keeps shrinking. So we're kind of fooling ourselves if, if we don't think, if we don't change the capacity mix and how we address this or this business, I can't, I can't continue to steal people. There's a two for one shortage of people coming out of college. They got two jobs for every one person going into accounting, assuming they even stay in account. So I've got a 50% shortage right out of the box just on any new stuff. And Dave, I don't have any handle on this, but I can't find concrete numbers on how many exiting CPAs there are. And if they truly exit, but it's different if, if, you know, if I'm asked to leave the firm because I've now hit my mandatory re- retirement, but I still may be in the firm. I'm just not, I'm no longer an equity partner and I may be doing a consulting role. I don't even know if I'm, people don't know if those stats are there. How do you report that? Yeah, I heard a, I heard a stat thrown out. I don't know how, I don't know. I, I don't have a source for the stat, um, but it came from, you know, other thought leaders in the profession. Everybody seemed to have heard the same thing that, um, I think it was in the next, is either by 2025 or in the next five years, 50% of our profession will have retired. 50%. Well, there were, there were two states where we were able to actually concurrently get actual information on aging population. New York and North Carolina both had information out there. Um, North Carolina, I think it was over 15% of the CPAs were over 70. I mean, Already. And, oh, yeah. And in both of those states, the number of CPAs over 50 was well over 50% and over 60 in some cases were over 50%. So it's like you start to do the math and you're like, it's just going to continue to get worse. 
That's why firms got to be looking at how do I how do I put the right technology in place? How do I offshore? Firms have resisted offshoring for a long time, and and some have done it and failed because you know I put the wrong person in charge. But I picked the cheapest option. You know, if you pick the cheapest option right. for anything, you're probably going to get either get massively lucky or experience a failure. And be very dissatisfied with your five dollar shirt that you found on sale, and it's like, <laughs> well, it was five bucks and looked good at the time, and then you put it on later, and it's like, uh, I end up buy a five dollar shirt, just going to get thrown away. It, but, yeah, but the truth of the fact of the matter is that in the future, there are going to be more accountants hired outside of the U.S. than inside. There's more CPAs, especially making the CPA exam change, giving it outside the United States. So people got to reckon reconcile to the fact that you're the man with mergers, acquisitions, or offshore, onshore. Where does the firm go? By the way, 664,532 active CPA licenses in the U.S., according to NASBA, as of uh, July 24th. Interesting. And 75,000 is the estimate of the new accounting grads coming into that pool. but. How many of those, Dave, you think you've you've got more handle on this than I do? How many of those 75,000 grads are actually going to sit for the exam? 60, maybe? Very few, yes. Yeah, 60, maybe 50 if we're lucky. And currently, the number of people sitting for the exam is like right around 90,000 or a little under. So that number is just going to drop like a rock. Um, pool's going to continue to shrink, and we're all going to continue to fight. Now, you want to go back to why, Jason, we have some problem with the M&A? So the, 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 the typical firm's model is built off of a deferred comp system. So I put my 10, 20, 30 years in, whatever the number is, right? And normally, normally I have 20 years to get qualified for the deferred comp program. And that's an unfunded program in about 85% of the firms in the United States. So what's going to happen is Bob Jr. is going to come in, and the Bob Juniors, beneath me, are going to come in and look at that number and go, I don't know if I want to buy it or not. Do I want to, do I want to pay for that? So the model before has been perfect. So, you know, Dave would sell his firm to me. I'd come in. I'd pay Dave's deferred comp program off. I'm making my money. I figure my calculations. I'm waiting for the next person to come and do the same thing for me. The chain is broken. They don't want to buy the deferred comp program liability. They don't think the firm's worth what it's worth because there's too many 1040s in there or whatever the number mm-hmm. is, okay, and are too low a value. And I can't find people. So if I'm concerned about if I can't find people and I'm buying this liability off at the rate the partnership agreement has, and I don't know if I want to buy it. So what's my option? If I'm that person, I'm that the firm that's in the middle. I bought Dave's practice. I'm paying Dave off. I'm sitting there looking for my turn to have somebody come in and buy me off. What do I do? I go upward. This is what opens the door now to. Traditionally, there's been a lot of M&A upward. I look for a bigger firm that can absorb me. Um, I use the word guarantee my deferred comp liability. Maybe they're not going to pay me what I think the firm's worth, but that's all subject to the quality of my firm, location, lots of variables. But they say, let's say, move my firm up. I get some comfort the fact that I'm going to roll into the deferred comp program. That's option one. Now, a new option, which has been last couple of years, private equity. Do I take an outside investment in? Now, if I've got a smaller firm, two, three, four million dollar firm, it's not a small firm, by the way. It's a large firm. Most of the firms in the United States, but still small for private equity. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty much not what they're looking for. They'd like a nice $10 million buy-in up. But eventually, they'll be rolling in smaller firms into that. But that's one option, private equity. And there's a cost to that. There's an opportunity and a cost to it. Um, I could look at what's happened recently with uh, Bergen KDB. I can mention names because it's public. It's all over the place, right? 600 plus person CPA firm gets acquired by a large wealth management company. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's, That's huge. a game changer. Yeah. By the way, we've done these in the past. I've actually done a couple of uh, wealth management firms buying accounting firms. Uh, never went to that size because I think if I did that, I'd probably retire off of that commission. <laughs> um, so, um, the point of the matter is, that's another entryway now. So, I got private, I got a traditional method of merging upward or selling. I've got Internal succession, which is my first option, if I can pull that off and somebody wants to buy me off. If not, I got to merge up or sell. Um, I can go private equity or look at that option. I can look at registered investment advisors, which is a, similar to private equity, but a different outcome. And in this session, probably won't get into that today, but 
So a lot of this quite a difference between a registered investment advisor and a private equity option, from what I've been able to tell. And you know, and then my other option is I don't do anything. I just run it out, close the doors, fire sale right. at the end. And then we do hear that from a lot of firms. So like, well, why would I sell out at this price when I can just work for three more years and make the same amount of money? And the answer to that is very simple. You're not, you're not ready to retire. You don't really want to get out then. If you're not serious about getting out, you can't make owner comp and get out at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You have to take a reduction in your owner comp because, Jason, if you're going to buy my firm, are you going to want to pay me all the owner comp that I've been pulling out? And then maybe you can make money in three years when I'm gone. Nope. It's an attractive option. However, Jason, if you're willing to do that, I have many firms that would love to talk to you. I bet they would. <laughs> so, so what about all these? Why is private equity putting in all this money to, to get these accounting firms? Do yeah. they want the accounting firm or they want something else? Great question. So let's, let's, let me answer that with the registered investment advisors first. I'll go right back to your private equity. So the registered investment advisor's got a little different window. They've got a ton of clients already in place that need accounting and tax services. And the accounting firms got accounting and tax services available to deliver. And a lot of clients that maybe have wealth management opportunities. So that's an interesting shift. The private equity, they're looking at this as a straight investment where they think that they can make money off the fact that it's a recurring service model, okay? They believe that they can increase the multiple and resell it in a four to five year window. Now, some are saying it's a family office, so they don't have to resell it, which is fine. I believe there's a lot of different models popping out of there. But they believe they can run the operation in a more profitable pace. And it's a steady, steady group of businesses. Now, my understanding was initially when I saw the private equity market, and there's many, there's so many opinions out there. So everyone just Calm down when you go, well, that's not the way it goes. There's a lot of opinions and options that we're seeing. I would think if 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 Dave was the private equity organization looking to acquire my firm, he would bring in maybe the insurance company that he owns, the technology company that he owns that he has investments in, bring him in, cross-sell him into my client base of three, 400 business clients or whatever. And then my firm now becomes much larger in size because they're purchasing other services from Dave's other clients on top of it all. So everybody's winning. That would be the great model. Now, as my, my profitability begins to significantly go up, so will my EBITDA, which means my multiple will be more attractive for them to take, for Dave to take my practice and maybe sell it to you, Jason. Because now, if he has to hold it for four or five years, if that's his minimum maximum term he can hold, or if he sees the opportunity to sell it to another buyer because he's increased it over the next couple of years and made it more valuable, great play. If he's not doing that, though, if Dave's not bringing in all those other things, he just purchased my firm or part of my firm, we can still continue to grow it. And I may I may get 40% of the, the next bite of the apple, as they like to call it, because I still own 40% of it. How's it going to grow more exponentially with Dave's money? I, I'm not sure how it is. Really, what Dave's doing when I'm looking at this is he's buying my, maybe my deferred comp program. He give me money to pay that off. Maybe give me money that I can invest into uh, some of the employees or maybe provide some stock options for the employees or buy another company with, which may then allow me to get bigger as an organization. But it's a little less clear than the whole RAA cycle house right now. The difference is, you know, the RAA cycle house is still fairly new. I mean, it made a big shakeup. To me, that was big news because we've been playing in this market a little bit for a few years. When I saw that deal, I'm like, well, that's, like, that's a game changer in this industry because now we have another option. I did miss another point, though. I know it's hard to believe, but I missed the point. I, I and we were chatting before the, the, the podcast a little bit. I've been uh, I've gotten several inquiries over the last couple of weeks from outsourcing companies that want to acquire accounting firms. And yeah, that's channel. something else. Yeah, that's another channel else. now, right? That makes sense because you know what? I don't know, uh, Dave. Do outsourcing companies provide uh, tax and accounting and insurance services? I think they do, if I'm not they, mistaken. They, they all do, whether you're in India, the Philippines, or whatever. They're rendering that service. What? what and you, you made a great point with that because you really think about it. All these firms overseas have a a lot of money. They want to grow. And what's a what's a great way to grow? Buy a client base. You're always trying to sell to the CPA firm. Now you bought the CPA firm and they become captive to you the other way around. So you got yeah, a great yeah. idea there. And I can control it now. If I'm the outsourcing company, I can control how this service is provided. 
doesn't mean I'm going to get rid of the employees, but it takes me out of the fighting for the employee pool is hard. Um, do I even need CPAs to run my CPA firm? Is it even going to be a CPA firm moving forward? I don't know. So there's a lot of question about the assurance side of the house. I think that's one of those niches that are going to emerge. It'll be all I do are, are, are audits, um, you know, and, and I do it really, really well. And I've carved out everything else. I find it hard for the generalist firm. So when we look at an M&A transaction firm comes to us and they go, yeah, we're generalists. We have a lot of different industries, some little government, nonprofit, public, you know, not publicly traded, but privately held companies. And then, and then Jason, you'll, you'll be one of my, uh, one of my people, but you also do like a, you do audit and tax and accounting. And that's a, that's a big, that's a big ask to ask of one person to know all those regulatory issues and all those systems. So I think there'll be more and more niching. Um, well, you know, Dave, so. I, I think the big niche is going to be audit. Like you say, I think that's going to go its way because everyone who's doing private equity, aren't they splitting off the audit firm and saying all the growth is going to be in a cons- professional service consulting well, area? They are because of a couple of reasons. Well, obviously, you know, if I, I if I have a CPA firm, I, I have to create an alternative practice structure. I, I can't have an outside investor coming into a CPA firm because of the ownership rules by typically by state. So they carve that off into a separate entity. But when you look at it, historically, audit has never been the most profitable when I can look at other service lines. So if I'm an investor and I buy your firm, Jason, and I start looking at all the different service lines and which ones are more profitable, I'm probably going to put a bigger emphasis on the ones I think that are more profitable and start to decrease the ones that don't sell as well. Or I shouldn't say don't sell as well, but aren't as profitable. Right. The interesting thing, though, is we're getting back to what's required. What's required, it really, accounting isn't really required, but you can't really create the outcomes without doing the accounting. But I've got tax regula- regulations in place and I've got audit regulations in place. Okay. So if I choose to maybe skip on the audit regulations, I don't mean shortcut, but like defocus that and let that group begin to maybe shrink, that's great. Part of this, though, is here's the mystery I can't figure out. Well, I can't, I can figure it out. I just don't know why we, how we got here. Okay. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, the only people that can certify a financial statement are CPAs. That's right. So I can't get that service anywhere else. So if I have a monopoly, which is exactly what that is, it's a monopoly, I should be charging a very high fee for that service. Yet somehow, the industry has managed to beat that fee down to the lowest level, which is the thing that they sell that is the most premium thing that only they can sell. So Dave, I could do your tax return for you. It would be absolutely horrible, but I could do it legally. I don't have to be a CPA to do your tax return. Jason, I could do your accounting for you. It, again, folks, if you're going to hire me for those services, suggest strongly go somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, but the audit, though, that, that has to be done by the CPA. So we've taken the only thing that they actually have a huge monopoly on and have managed to crush that fee structure. One, because people don't like value the audit. It's, it's you know, the consumer typically isn't like, oh, great, the auditor's coming. I'm getting very excited. Right. They don't do that for the tax person either, but at least the tax person has some glimmer of hope that I could get some money back or something. Uh, the auditor, I'm just going to try and escape to make sure I everything went okay. And that's their job. Their job is to make sure that my financials are strong so they're looking for holes in case I do have holes in my financial structure, which I'd like to know. Um, I just don't want to hear it if that comes up. So the one thing that we have that we own the monopoly on, we're selling at the lowest price. So anytime you pull up to the pump at the gas station and you're wondering, wow, why is gas worth 50 a gallon or whatever it is in your neighborhood? And you're like, oh, the oil company's got it right. They got together. <laughs> they figured out. They figured out, let's charge more instead of less. And, and that's why the people don't see value in the audit, because all the law, you know, I think uh, audit analytics says, I think 10 firms control 69% of the public audits. Yeah. They pass, they pass them around. Uh, of course, I think we as CPAs have devalued the audit. We've sold the audit at a lower price because we wanted to sell them other services. Now, by splitting the firms off, you can sell them all those other services and you got your audit firm on the side. So uh, I I think maybe government regulation will make auditors separate. Well, see, Dave, look at this too. 
So they keep increasing the, the regulatory issues inside an audit. So the stuff that I have to do as an auditor now, and, and Jason's my client, I have more steps I need to go through. So I have to talk to Jason about, I have to increase Jason's fee. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to go through these other steps, but I'm being forced by the government, which will be you, Dave, in this case. He'll be the government. You're forcing me to make changes. I got to go back to Jason and I need to find a way to tell him it's going to cost him more. And here's why. And Jason's like, well, I don't really understand why we have those regulations and I don't care. So me being maybe not the greatest salesperson as an accountant, which many of them are not the best salespeople in the world. A lot of really good ones that that can sell me out of, can sell me into the ground. They're great. So the way for me to avoid confrontation with Jason is really not to increase the fee or to increase it so small that I cover part of my loss with Jason, but not all of it. And my my downward spiral continues that way. And it's not because I price it necessarily wrong, but you, Dave, in the government role forced me to do more regulatory issues. So now, so me as a firm is going, you know what? I got more and more regulations and checks. I got to watch. I got to watch how I sell the client at the same time. Do I even want to invest more resources and energy in this? And then I've got to look at my incoming staff and sell them on the school sexy world of audit. But hey, it's a great world. You should enter it. Honestly, there is so much opportunity in that marketplace right now for, for price improvement um, that really good progressive younger accountants could kill it in that market. Um, supply and demand. Somebody's got to do the work. The work has to be done. Yep. So do it on, I'll do it overseas. But, but, It'll happen. Sure. But, but everything you said brings us back to what I think, Jason, you started with. The future where the value is in making more money is selling advisory services because every business wants help. They don't want the audit. They'll take it as a necessary evil. But everybody who has a business or has money, hey, tell me how to be more liquid, solvent, and profitable. Sell right. me something. Yeah, I want to know how I can make my cupcakes at a, more, at a higher profit margin. I don't want to know how much it costs me to make my cupcakes so I know that because I already know that. I don't need historical reporting. I need you to tell me how I can run my business better. Not all accountants are equipped to that. It's, Dave, I want to touch on another interesting point. I know you read this. You read everything. So nothing slips by you. Um, well, maybe a few things, but not much. Okay. Not much. No, you're right. Why, why are the large firms laying off their advisory staff? Why would we, why, why, if I have my, my 30 person CPA firm, why would I want to go into advisory when the large firms are laying their staff off? The question is, one up there. Well, the question is, I, I, I follow my Reddit uh, sidelines and look, listen to all the complaints out there and why people are working and not working. I think they're, more right-sizing, just like Google, Apple, and all the other companies. They've had tremendous staffs. The pandemic forced them to be more efficient with the use of technology. So do they need as many people? Probably not. Plus, they've become global. They're doing a lot of work out of the U.S. Well, the other thing, too, is we're serving two different markets here. So if I'm a big four firm, my clients have a different series of needs for advisory, which many of those clients, by the way, have their own in-house advisory councils and staffing to help them with. If I have a 30-person CPA firm and I have clients that maybe maybe I got $100 million clients, most of them are going to be probably five to 10. That five to $10 million client, they don't have that staff in-house. They don't have anybody to help them with that advisory. So that market is ripe and it's a market that the big four firm isn't going to go down to sell into because the pricing is too high. So the difference is when you read the stuff in, in, in uh, well, I almost said the newspaper, that would have really dated me. When you, read stuff, <laughs> when, you read, when you read the news that's out there, you're thinking, oh, look at the trend. Advisory services are not working out. It's because it's two different things. That's two different markets completely. Inside these, the, the pyramid, we've got the base of the smaller clients going up the pyramid. Those clients at the, at the base and at the second tier of that pyramid, they need a ton of this help. They have no idea how to do this stuff. Right. The, and, and when you get into the advisory, which is why so many firms are struggling, the openness is they think they got to bring in in-house. Like I got to hire Jason to run my advisory group and I'm a 30-person firm. I kind of I kind of hire Jason to run this. Plus, because does he have a team that he can bring in? What's his focal area? I'd rather have Jason come in and, and develop all kinds of relationships with different partners, partners meaning different organizations out there that I can bring into my client base until we get large enough to go, you know what? We need to bring uh, exit planning 100% into our firm or cyber 100% into our firm. So go out and hire Dave to run our cyber department then because we got a ton of work. In the meantime, you know, I should start slow by partnering 
to get ready for either an acquisition or merger to bring in a company or bring in a person. We see the mistake happening over and over again, and they, they jump in, and then the guy that they bring in wants to do quality of earnings, which doesn't even fit 99% of my client base. Like, what good is that? Because I brought it down from a larger firm um, consultant that could, that either got let go or they cut back and they, they want to bring this guy in because it looks like he can really run the advisory group. What are they what are they selling to those clients? That's you got to match your advisory service to your client base. But 100% agree. You, you, you're talking like Jason now. He says when you want to start something, you got to make a decision. What do you say, Jason? Buy, build, build buy or partner. Yeah. Build, exactly buy what you use. Yep. Yep. Buy, we use, we use buy it, merge it. We use build it, buy, merge, or partner, you know? And we're seeing the, the buy, merge happening more too with when you get into like non-accounting firms. So I want to look to acquire Jason's technology company. I'm really not maybe acquiring it. Maybe I'm acquiring controlling interests. Like I'll take maybe 51%. He'll keep 49%. I'll pay them off a little bit, put just some money down. But we co we co-brand that company, run it separately. We sell Jason's firm into my client base. We're cross-selling, and we have a two two entities now in play. Um, or I mer- or I just merge them in, which can make great sense too. Maybe I don't buy them. There's all kinds of options out there right now that we're seeing. And some of these, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar firms, we're seeing 50% advisory. That's that's a huge statement for a yeah. firm that size to have that kind of advisory level. Um, and more and more of them coming out of that market that way. The sad start, we see we see a lot of companies that have 10% or less in advisory. Right. And then, and then where the counting is advisory is CAAS. I've never understood that. How did, <laughs> did client accounting and advisory get lumped in? Advisory is a whole different animal than client accounting services. So. I've never understood that either, but we do. Everybody does it. And it's just general, generally accepted. Like, oh, yeah, CAS. We call it CAS 2.0 or 3.0 uh, or whatever. But why would, you, why would you lump your accounting services in with your advisory? It makes absolutely no sense. Is it a pipeline feeder for advisory? Sure. Right. But two different disciplines. So to me, in my mind, we've got assurance, we've got tax, we've got client accounting services and advisory. And there's, there's I, a, the, the reporting on the numbers is very confusing because how you ask the question on the survey depends on how I'm going to answer it. And if you don't ask the right questions on the survey, I'm going to answer right. So we've got people blending numbers together and chasing goals that honestly don't always make sense. So well. And that probably has a lot to do, Bob, and you're, you're closer to this than I am, so so help me bring clarity to that, but it probably has a lot to do with the way that the firms are structured. And, uh, you know, I know there's there's people out there that call for the death of the partnership model, right? Um, because that's very restricting in how, you know, these firms are able to approach these services, and there's just so much more to it. And so all this kind of spins together, this, this M&A and private equity and how we structure and how these firms are evolving. And what I thought, you know, something that you you said as well is um, the the larger firms, you know, fifty percent advisory revenue, right? One of the big problems that that we have in our profession is there there's no real burning platform for these firms that are at the ten percent. They're making money, they're doing well, and you you mentioned it before, like even if they're at the retiree stage and they're not thinking about succession planning, they're just like, oh, I'll fire sell it at the end, you know, or let it die on the vine because I'm I'm doing good. I don't need to change, but the the firms that are that have been leaning into this already and have gotten to the fifty percent rate, those are those are the firms that are going to be on the other side of this, not not ones that are resisting. The interesting point in the fire sale, though. So I am kind of playing with fire if I decide to continue on my own because the recruiting thing is not going to get better. The technology investments aren't going to get better. Oh, what if I get sick? Ooh, there's an issue there too. What happens then? So. The, there's a risk reward you, you do when you look at this situation. I want to go back to your partnership model comment, though. So we all know who, <laughs> who <laughs> has gone to a corporate model, right? By the way, not right or wrong. No, I mean, the, the, uh, they did it for their own reasons. But let's look at like a corporate corporation. Corporations run by a board of directors, okay, an elected board of directors. Right. If I go back to a partnership model, a partnership model has an executive committee, an elected executive committee. <laughs> I would just do choices the same. Elected was common on both, right? So the difference between a corporation and partnership model is 
If the board of directors screws up and makes bad decisions, they'll get voted out of the board and there'll be new people put in the board. But still, that board's making the decisions. What should be happening in a partnership model is the executive committee should be making those decisions. And let's assume it's a commit, it's, it's a decision that goes to a higher level, like you know, you've got supermajority votes kind of thing. What happens in a corporation? All the all the all the shareholders vote on certain issues, right? What's the difference, really? I mean, I, hate to say, I don't want to go out there and I, I know BDO has put a ton of money into this, and there's a reason why they would do it versus other, but when you look at it. What we need to be doing is empowering the executive committee inside these partnerships and the boards and the corporations and letting them do their own thing. And if they do the wrong, make the wrong decisions, they get voted out. We move on. But in the partnership model, we got 18 partners trying to vote on whether we should put a new copier in. Okay, that's what the executive committee should do. They should only be focused on putting new copiers in. But uh, <laughs> but seriously, I think that's part of what, what we've got here is if I'm in a partnership model, but the unfortunate thing is, Dave, how many CPA firms are there in the country? I've heard 45,000. I don't know. It's a very number. I think I think that's what the AICPA constantly talks about, 46,000. And then once you go past the top 600 firms, then they're all 20 or less. But yeah. that's what the, they talk about. My understanding is there's only 1,000 firms from a million bo- over a million dollars of those 45,000. So most of the partnerships that are out there are dictatorships. It's just me and I got some people which is fine, you know, it works. Um, or we've got that group in the middle there that's got like five or six partners and maybe they're not that big. Um, and those are the firms I think that struggle because they don't really have an executive committee. They got a bunch of partners and meet around the table. And there's a managing partner, but he or she really does a decision without the other partners behind him or her. So right. yeah, I think it's, I think it's when we look at the model, I'm not sure if the model is really the driver. I think the driver is, is who we put, who we give authority to make decisions on, on that. But that's a, that's probably a conversation for a whole, whole separate day. Getting back to your, your initial core about what's happening in the, in the M&A, we've got just a ton of disruption right now. Yeah. But see, everybody looks at this as a negative, like, oh, it's disruptive. I don't want to deal with the change. There's so much opportunity out there for anybody who's got any like-minded progressiveness at all to think about firms that they could acquire. Um, and, and, and I've had other people tell me, why would I acquire this firm with a bunch of old clients in it and not enough staff? Well, you probably wouldn't make that acquisition, but there's other firms out there that have great staff, great clients, and they need or need of a transition because their leadership team does not have the right succession in place. And it doesn't mean that their team is bad. It just means they're not ready to take over a firm yet. Or right. they don't want to. You know, there's a lot of people that are good. Just I just want to be a manager. I like being a manager. I don't want to deal with responsibility. I don't want to take the debt on. And you got to be able to read, you know, kind of read the room of, of what you're looking to acquire. And inside your own firms, read the room. Right. Firms go, oh, I've got a great succession plan. I'll lay it out. But I haven't shared any of it with the team yet. Nor have I talked to them about the buy-in or how much money they can make. You know, Dave, you, you see numbers. Jason, I'm sure you see them as well. Do you think every partner in the firm shares with staff how much money they make per year? Of course not. No. Why not? No way. Because oh. they're, well, in some cases, they're afraid to tell them how much money they're really making versus sure. how much they're paying. Well, you know what, though? It took me 30 years to get where I'm at. Okay? It's not like, oh, Wow, you're right. I should pay you almost as much as I'm getting paid now because, you know, I need you to stay to work. The problem, though, is if you don't tell people what you're making. They leave. Well, they don't know what the opportunity is. Right. Was, I, I think a lot of a lot of accountants feel like, you know, oh, I'm making, you know, 125000 a year. I'm doing really great. I'm killing it. And they don't know the managing partner is making nine hundred. Or the core partners average 500 or 400. And I guess I'm throwing numbers around that are very variable here, by the way, for anybody listening to this, but they don't know the gap in income that's like, well, I didn't know that you could make that much money in a firm. Yeah. Now, well, and that's still based on the traditional model, right, Bob? So, you know, when yeah. we come full circle, it, it doesn't really matter, as he's saying, traditional model, corporate model. But really, what really matters, and we keep forgetting it, and you've had it. You go by those thousand firms or those top firms. There's lots of firms in the middle where people can make in five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand, a small firm or even a sole practitioner, three to five hundred thousand dollars a year, and not oh, yeah. themselves doing it. We right. see we see the numbers come across. With I mean, I see people with a two million dollar firm sole owner making one point two million. I mean, 
CPA profession, great place to be. People should become CPAs. Yeah. That person, that person in that kind of example, they aren't working those, they're working heavy hours, but not like crazy hours. They're just really good at what they do. They're value price everything well. They got the right kind of clients, you know, and there's others that do it by grinding out the numbers. I make $500,000 a year because I build 2,500 hours a year, you know? Right. And so there's a different place for everybody. The question becomes what's saleable when you really get into the M&A world. Is that 2,500 hour billable person, you know, saleable? Odds are really not. When we see that, that's a sign of really deficient culture all the way across the board. When I see a firm doing $400, 1040s, you just pretty much told me your entire pricing scheme. I don't even have yep. to go further. No, we yep. don't look any further. We'll look, but we'll be, there'll be no surprises like, oh, you're doing $400, 1040s, but your average billable rate is $750. Well, that would be a surprise. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, you're making some astronomical number off of that. There's, there's places and niches for everybody out there. It's it just that, unfortunately, when I go to sell my practice, if I'm an accounting firm, I have to realize that it isn't what I think it's worth. It's what Dave is willing to buy from me. And if right. Dave, Dave's expectation is much, much lower than I think it should be, I have to make a decision to either look further or continue to do what I'm doing for a period of time. Going, okay, I just can't sell this thing for what it's worth because I went to Dave and I went to you, Jason, and three other people, and they all told me basically the same thing. That I either have to decide to sell it at that price or hold it work it as long as I want to work. But when I do that, I don't get my life back. Right. That's that's a decision. I mean, then I'm probably not ready to exit. More people though are doing a seminar, not because I want to exit. I need to plug in. Right. You need to plug into somebody who's got the outsourcing, the advisory, uh, the, the recruiting in place, the technology, because I can't do it on my own. I've got a client that I really like this guy and he's, he's in a process of making some changes that, uh, I'll leave it that vague so that it can't be picked up off this, pro- this podcast. Um, he goes, I'm really good at what I do with clients. I am really good at it. I spend about 10% of my day with clients now. I spend the other 90% dealing with personal issues and technology problems and other stuff. He goes, stuff I don't want to do, and I'm not even that good at it. The stuff I'm really good at, I don't get time to get to because he got enough to, he got large enough where that has become a major problem for him. And we hear that story a lot. Yeah. And some people aren't cut out for that kind of work. Some people are really great cut out for the client work. They're not cut out to run a firm. They're not good salespeople. They don't want to run technology. I sure don't want to do billing here. God, the last thing I want to do is pay bills and issue bills here. Um, I used to. I was horrible at it. So I have somebody that does it for me now. And it's much better because you know what I don't do? I don't spend any time paying bills <laughs> or issuing bills or dealing with insurance. Are dealing with anything else, technology. I don't do any of that. Right. So you know what? I'm not that good at that. I'm good at yeah. other things. That is not my strength. So and then you're ultimately happier, more successful. And so are your clients, you know, following that philosophy and coming right back around to kind of where we started, right? And then I, I think I want to be respectful of your time. We we've uh um Whatever you need. we'll wrap up after this, but you know, it's not even just that, right? It's also the the opportunity that we talked about as being squandered and you know the way that these these firms are going to look as we come out of the other side of all of this you know everything that we've talked about that will be happening over the next five to ten years not sooner uh what's well, already happening but uh, when we will come out on the other side of it is, is yet to be seen um but i would if i were to look into my crystal ball i'd say five to ten years out we'll, we'll see a very very different profession in front of us and that's because of the, the opportunity that when these firms are engaging in these activities that that we've been talking about, um, it's because not only are they trying to stop the bleeding on a problem, but they're also seeing the additional opportunity beyond the way that we've been operating the last several hundred years. We talk a lot about problems and there are always going to be problems and we've solved all those problems and we knew problems, but the opportunity and the results are astronomical. Now, sometimes the path they got there isn't quite as clear. But you think back, Jason, look at, you know, look at the cell phone you've got, which I'm sure you have a cell phone at this point in your life. Um, look at your cell phone and think back 20 years ago, what you had. Yeah. You know, it was just like, oh, my God, the, the computing power, the, you know, remember the old flip phones and the razors and all this. Yeah. The Motorola in a big box phone um, that was the initial ones that came out. That's just something that's mainstay. What we're going to be in 10 years, people are going to be looking back at this going, Oh, everybody, everybody's using outsourcing and uh, look at the technology stacks, look at what they're doing. They're doing most of the work. And it's me, it's me directly dealing with a client now going, Hey, here's what I would do if I were you based on the information you've got going on financially or whatever. That's what accountants are going to become. 
And then you got those that are going to niche out like deep, deep, deep into the tax areas that get they're doing obscure tax code. Because no matter how much AI covers, it's, it's AI can't determine how I'm going to interpret tax code versus how Dave's going to interpret it. There's, there's a looseness there. And that yep. person will be highly valued and highly paid and probably very aggravated by all the tax code that they'll need to memorize. But that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> well said. All right, Bob. Well, thanks so much for for joining us today and sharing your insights. These were, I mean, really cool conversation, and I think we uncovered uh, some some additional things that you know we hadn't really covered on the show before with other guests. So, um, you know, love that we could some bring some more of that to light as as we see this profession and the landscape before us changing in ways we've never seen before. Appreciate the time. And I've known Jason for my coolness. It's like, that's a thing. It's like, I think it's my middle name, but yeah. <laughs> Bob Coolness Lewis. Yeah, it's like I danger. Put danger in the middle of there. Yeah. <laughs> danger. <laughs> hey, hey, before you go though, Bob, how can people reach you if uh, they're looking to find out more about you or how you can help them? Okay. So 800-995-9186, the old school dial way. Or you can just go to think that's T-H-I-N-K think visionary b-i-s-i-o-n-a-r-y.com and everything's there everything you've always dreamed about is there um so <laughs> look we're we deal with we deal with a lot of managing partners a lot of partners and firms and and i'd like to say we're the smartest people out there but we learn from a lot of smart people repackage a lot of lists come up with different ideas we got we're pretty deep what we don't do for firms everything else besides we don't pick their technology Want to audit and tax software? We're not the people to talk to about that. You want to go through your workflow processes? We're not the people. You got a partnership dispute, partnership agreement issues, anything else, MA, how to open advisory, all the rest of it that we cover. But, you know, uh, and if you need help with technology systems, we'll put you to the right person that we know that does because we know just about everybody out there in this industry. So appreciate the time. Guys, enjoy. Thanks again, Bob. Have a great day. And uh, to everyone out there, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to learn more about any of the topics discussed on the show, visit intuitaccountants.com forward slash podcast. Account Trends is produced and edited by Luke Johnston. Copyright Intuit 2023.